0: Hello everyone, this is Alex Trumbull from The Alex Trumbull Show, and today is another good day. Yes, today we have a phenomenal guest with us, Mr. Craig Fugate. So if you've remembered that name, if it if it seems to, to ring somewhat of a bell, it's because he's freaking awesome. See, Craig served as President Barack Obama's FEMA Administrator from May 2009 through January 2017. Yeah, yeah. And before that, he actually served as the Emergency Management Director for Governor Jeb Bush from 2001 to 2007. Now, if you're noticing anything, those are two different political parties, but he was someone with so much integrity, such a great track record of getting things done as a leader that both parties, both Republicans and Democrats, trusted him to come in and do a phenomenal job. So he's gonna tell, talk to us a great deal today about how to build trust as a leader and how to make sure you get things done as you progress in your leadership journey. Now, again, This podcast is specifically geared towards those individuals at all levels of leadership, whether you're entry or mid-level leadership, or you're an executive hoping to move in more influential positions, this is the podcast, this is the place for you. So I'm hoping that you're taking notes just as I'm taking notes. And that's why we have so many great speakers coming to join us because we wanna make sure you can reach your career and professional aspirations. But before we get started, I'd like to just share with you that, honestly, I've had such a phenomenal year with all of you. And I just wanna thank you so much for for your listening and your comments and, 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 and reaching out and reaching back. I love it, I love it so much. And I wanted to give you the heads up that I've heard you and there are going to be some things that we're going to be evolving and improving over the next year. And so you're going to see some, us trying some new and cool things. And I just want to consistently hear from you and let me know what you like, what you don't like. And we'll keep molding and creating this phenomenal space for those leaders who want to excel to the next level. And as always, I love to come and speak to you and your team or at your next conference. So you can reach out to me at alextrimble.com on LinkedIn or tremblegps at gmail.com. I'm super easy that way. So without any further ado, let's bring on the man of the hour, Craig Fugate. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Tremble from The Alex Trimble Show, and I am excited today. Today, I, I wished upon a star a few weeks ago, and in that week, that wish came true. I'm here with hopefully my new friend Craig. How you doing, kind sir?
1: You didn't wish upon a star. You pinged me on LinkedIn.
0: Well, isn't that the same thing? <laughs>
1: I, I don't know. It's sort of like answering the phone. You never know who's on the other end. So,
0: <laughs> well, you know, I, I I will since you said that I will just make the point that. You know, you actually responded. Um, you know, I, I first I first heard of the work you were doing in this documentary on Netflix. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, I got to talk to this guy. Let me, let me see if I can reach out to him. And you reached back. And so can I just ask you why? You're an important guy. You're a busy guy. Why would you reach back to someone you didn't necessarily know? You asked. Well... Everyone, there we go. We'll wrap up the interview. (laughs) And you know, there's a story. um, I love to hear your your thoughts on this. Um, When I first started off my career, I I oversaw the executive leadership development program for the US Department of the Interior. And I did that when I was 23 years old. Um, It made no sense why they allowed me to do it. But um, the first thing I knew is. I couldn't do that alone. So I started reaching out to executives across the span um, from GE, from different agencies and so on and so forth. And the guy from GE who oversaw executive leaders development uh, for them, I asked him one day, he'd been mentoring me for a few months. And I said, why are you talking to me right now? And he said, what? And I said, why, why are you talking? You're busy. You're an executive. I'm 23 years old. Why are you talking to me? And he said the same exact thing you said, you asked. Most people aren't willing to ask. Um, what, what well, do you it's think? not only
1: it's not only that. It's think about how many times we try to tell people, you know, you need to be doing this. We need to you do that, and they're just not receptive to it. So when somebody's asking you, that's like you just open the door. Um, and so you know, it, it it it's 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 actually I think as much as you asking as it is we have something to say. Uh, and too often we're saying it to people who aren't receptive. So yeah, it makes sense when you see people say, Hey, you know, I'm asking you like, well, maybe they are interested in what we have to say.
0: Well, you know what? I, this one worked because I'm hundred percent interested in what you have to say. And I have a lot of questions for you. Um, I just been kind of pondering. And, and the, the first thing is I know you, and I did a little introduction of you in the beginning. Um, but for everyone who else doesn't know you, you're a little bit about how you got to where you were. My understanding is you used to be a, a volunteer firefighter. And after three weeks of working there, they say, hey, look, we want you to be the FEMA administrator. Is, is that how it worked?
1: Yeah, in a couple <laughs> of decades in between. Pretty <laughs> close. Um, yeah, I started out uh, right out of high school, uh, was asked to become, uh, join the local fire department. And uh, the next thing they said, well, we need EMTs. You need to go to EMT school. So I went and got my emergency medical technician uh, and it just kind of started building. And it was actually an opportunity to start a career, uh, got hired by the county, uh, worked as a paramedic, moved up to lieutenant fire rescue, uh, moved over to county emergency management when I had an opportunity. Uh, got a call to go to the state of Florida, took that opportunity. And then I got called to go to FEMA. And uh, it, it's kind of like when you look back, it kind of makes sense. But going forward, I, I never set out to be the FEMA administrator or, or work for the state, uh, do all this stuff. It just I, – I, a lot of times it just came because people called me up.
0: Well, you know, you, you've said before – that you've never kind of intentionally went after these things. Um, you just got those calls. And so I want, I'm going to push back a little bit. and just I'd love to kind of hear what you say about this. My challenge is those individuals who have been successful, they may not have intentionally done certain things, but you did something that made you stand up, that made people want to call you. I mean, even when you came out of high school and being asked to become a volunteer firefighter, What do you think it is about you or what you do or how you behave that makes people want to bring you um, into the fold?
1: I don't know why they want to ask me, but (laughs) I I know what I was doing. Uh, You know, once I became a a volunteer firefighter, I I just absorbed every bit of training I could get, Uh, both what the department offered and what I could get on my own. Every time I saw a course, uh, every time there's an opportunity to add another skill. And when I got into emergency management, it was the same way. So, you know, there, there, there may be some randomness on getting asked to go do something else, but each time I got the call, uh, I'd been working in some cases, you know, over a decade preparing myself for what was next. Uh, while I was focused on the job I was doing, And I think that's probably the biggest thing as I try to tell people, I wasn't looking when the opportunity came, but I was ready for a new challenge
0: wasn't looking when the opportunity came, but you're, you're ready.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was just focusing on uh, doing my job. And I I think this is sometimes hard for people because they're always looking at the next step. I'm like, well, if you're thinking about what's next, are you really doing what you're supposed to be doing to the full ability?
0: Mm.
1: So I wasn't looking for what was next. I was looking at getting as good as I could get doing what I, my profession was. My thought was, I have a job in front of me. I need to yeah.
0: stay focused on it. You, you know, when I, when I spoke to the, um, the current spokesman for the national um, RNC, National rep- our Republican National Committee, um, he actually said the same exact thing. He's just, he's a, he just advises people, do your job. Like, do your job well, but do your job. Don't, don't be focusing everywhere else. Because like you said, yeah. focusing everywhere else, maybe you're not going to do your job as, as effectively as you could.
1: And and looking back, I think that's why I got phone calls. Uh, People saw what I was doing and I wasn't out there uh, just talking about it. I was doing Mm -hmm. stuff Mm -hmm. and I had results and that spoke better than any uh, other tool or resume I could have ever produced was uh, I was getting things done and that I think is I've seen a lot of people try to figure out how to market, sell themselves, build Mm -hmm. their resumes, build a career, look at the next steps. And I go, if you're doing a really good job in focusing on the outcomes and things like that, uh, in many cases, that's better advertising for your potential than anything you'll ever put on paper. I
0: mean, but, but you've, you've managed very large organizations with thousands of employees. I mean, aren't there those employees who do work really hard, but no one sees what they do is they, they never move out of that.
1: Yeah. And, and that's always the risk. Um, and there's always this, you know, how do you, you know, how do you promote yourself without promoting yourself? And what yeah. I have yeah. also found is if you're telling your story, Eh, that's one voice. If other people are yeah. telling your story, that's many voices. Mm-hmm. And so even those people that are in the background that may not come to the attention of the FEMA administrator, uh, it was amazing to me how many times I found out about folks from other people say, Hey, you got,
0: yeah. you got to say
1: yeah. this person uh, is, as is a rock star. And what we found in many cases uh, in the world of responding to disasters, the people that do great every day, weren't always the rock stars when disasters happen. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you have this emergence of, of leadership uh, and potential that day to day, maybe they weren't put into an opportunity or a situation to excel, but in a crisis uh, they blossomed and you found out about people you would have never heard of otherwise. Uh, so there is some randomness to this, but I always go back to, are you a master craftsman of your profession? Yeah or are you just, is it a job? If you're a, if you're a master craftsman, if you're really focusing on what you do to better uh, build your skills and your capabilities, less worried about what other people are thinking or will anybody pay any attention to me? Because I also found that why you do something is about as important as what you do. Yeah, Yeah. And if it's, if it's for attention, if it's for recognition, if it's for promotion, uh, I've never really found that to be very fulfilling. Uh, it's when I am, you know, I, I look back and see what, you know, I was part of. And I go, that was, that was a good thing. That's what gave me the most satisfaction. So, again, I, I always come back to, yeah, there's, will, will people get overlooked? Absolutely. Uh, but that wasn't why I did it. I did it because I was, I was trying to be, the, in my case, an emergency manager, uh, the best at what I did without saying you know, I was in a competition, the competition was really with myself.
0: So so everyone, I hope you're hearing this. So one, be the best, I mean, work to be the best, master craftsman, uh, I guess I was speaking to, uh, I can't remember her name, I think it's Britain, I believe it's Britain, um, she's the um, uh, chief the vice president for talent acquisition at Navy Federal Credit Union. I asked her what made her Different. What made her stand out? What makes her excel in her in her in her field? She says, "I read every day, without question. I read every day um, because the industry, everything's always changing. I have to be growing, becoming, remaining a master uh, craftsman." So I, I love what you're talking about, and you also talked about the reason why you're doing those things. Um, I, you know, you also. You know, So people who are not watching this on YouTube right now, there's a rainbow behind uh, Craig, not literally, but basically um, you seem to be somewhat of a, of a, of a unicorn. I mean, I'll explain. Um, I have, I do these shows. and I do coaching and speaking for, you know, private sector and government and government. And, 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 but one day I know I want to come back and serve in a, senior level political appointee position within the government i I really love working with the government and what we do Um, but i've been told alex you gotta pick a side you gotta pick a side either you're a dim or you're an r that's it but you have worked for both administrations How, how were you able to position yourself in a place where people could trust you to do your job regardless of the administration
1: I saw myself as a public servant, not as a uh, political uh, person. Uh, I understand politics and, you know, I, I don't agree with uh, either side on everything. And um, but I also know that uh, being a public servant is you don't get to pick the political masters. That's what the voters do. And as an appointed official, you're at the pleasure of. Uh, but the elected, uh, you know, the elected leadership, that's who the public picked. And I think that's sometimes forgotten, even in federal government. Uh, you swear an oath to the Constitution, not to the office of the presidency. And if you're a public servant, your job is to fulfill the obligations of your position to the best of your ability while following the law. Uh, and that may not be real popular, maybe old fashioned, but a public servant doesn't have the luxury of saying I won't work for this party or that party, because the question then is, well, what do you, why do you even think you're a public servant? You seem to be more uh, this is about you instead of the people you serve.
0: Mm. Oh, you're so right. I'm not sure. Again, maybe you're right. Maybe it is old fashioned. That's how I am. That's how I was raised and in my belief that when I was a federal employee, My job is to enact the policies and the programs that the elected people, citizens elected into office. Um, But I don't know, have we we moved into a different time where this is not the case anymore? Because you you hear about it so often of, I'm not going to implement this, I'm not going to implement that, or like you know, people can slow things down. Um, Have we moved into a different time?
1: Bureaucracies hate change. I got a feeling that, you know, this, this, we're going to slow roll the uh, elected leadership or the new folks coming in. And uh, we were here when you came and we'll be here when you (laughs) leave. And I'd been around long enough. I'd come up to the ranks and I kind of like just, you know, said, Well, guys, I'm not a short term person. I mean, in all of my positions, I've served, you know, long periods of time. And I knew that was a tendency. I knew I was going to win everybody over, and as far as leadership goes, I think I'm a horrible boss, and I'm not really sure I have much leadership skills. <laughs> but um, I also knew that uh, I wasn't going to get where we needed to go by being reasonable and agreeable to the career staff or defer to the career staff on everything. And I think my advantage was coming into FEMA was I was an emergency manager at first, political point. 22nd. Yeah. And people don't believe me. I, I don't get the campaigns. I did. I never met the president until I got appointed. Um, I didn't lobby for the job. I got asked if I would consider it, and I said reluctantly. Um, so, yeah, I saw myself first as an emergency manager. I yeah. knew the mission of FEMA, I'd been a customer of them for decades. Uh, and so when I went in, I think I was well prepared to deal with. Uh, Both the tendency not to make changes, the tendency to look at the political uh, as a short term. Everybody, you know, it's like the uh, uh, the movie where uh, everybody has enthusiasms when they come in. Uh, But I was there for the long haul. and There were things that I I thought we should be doing differently. And I was going to do my best ability to get there
0: well now we have started talking about FEMA so i want to share with everyone this this idea that you you shared during that documentary that made me I think my my interest um you talked about how moving forward you said there's like a reality that the government is just not going to have the funds required to to Take care of all these emergencies we will be having in the future, and so you talked about the importance of the community playing a role in this. Um, I, you shaking here it' It's not like I'm, I'm not being crazy right now. Um, can you expound a little bit on that, real quick, for the for the audience?
1: Yeah, this this really goes back to the 2004 hurricane season. Up until that point, all of our focus after Hurricane Andrew was how do we improve government response, and it 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 manifest itself in the four hurricane season, when we got we were hit by four hurricanes in Florida that year. And each storm was just piling on the next one. And we had really built an effective government response. Uh, the storms were within that capability search and rescue being on the ground, we were, we were getting to the point where within the first, uh, you know, 24 hours, we were on the ground doing search and rescue after these storms, uh, pretty consistently. So we, we, we thought we got it. We figured this one out. Uh, in Katrina, we sent close to 6,000 responders from the state of Florida over to Mississippi and Louisiana. We projected we we all that from state, supported it. You know, you know we got this. And then this latter-day hurricane comes in called Wilma. And Wilma wasn't as deadly as the other hurricanes that year, certainly not anything comparable to Katrina, but it was still a significant hurricane for Florida. And it kicked our butt. I mean, it just literally overwhelmed our system. Yeah. And it forced us to recognize that what I call government centric problem solving has a ceiling. And once you get to that ceiling, you can't go any higher. I mean, it, you're basically using up all the resources you've got. And so the question you got to ask what's left? And what was left was everybody that wasn't in government, the private sector. Uh, we had done, I think, a better job in Florida after Hurricane Andrew of engaging the volunteer organizations, but we still looked at the public as a liability. And so we, we, we began to rethink and going, if the disasters are getting bigger, then government-centric problem-solving isn't gonna keep up. We need to change what we're doing. And this was where this idea of engaging the community uh, was what I saw was the only answer to the larger scale disasters. You go back to Katrina, you even go back to Hurricane Andrew. When everybody talks about first responders, the reality was a lot of the initial rescues were neighbors helping neighbors. Yet most plans looked at the public as a liability you take care of. And I'm like, we don't have that luxury. They're a resource. So we got to engage them like they're a resource and figure out how we're going to work with the public, how we're going to work with the business sector uh, and Everybody says, well, you you know, they're going to be doing stuff that you can't control. They're, they're going to do bad stuff and everything else. And I'm like, yeah, I got all that, folks. I said, you got options. It ain't that bad. I said, you need to embrace the chaos and, and, and let go of absolute control and recognize that a lot of stuff's going to happen whether you give it permission or not. So rather than trying to fight it, you ought to figure out how to collaborate, and work with the public and see how you can uh, speed up this response.
0: Well, it. <laughs> I, I, I love the, I love the thought of this because again, I, I actually saw it in the documentary. I'm unlucky. I watched it. Um, and everyone of you, if you haven't, I think it's explained on Netflix. I believe um, the, the community actually really appreciated being involved um, and they all, everyone started playing their own roles and they, they, they were able to then comfort one another. Cause again, there was some organization around this. So it made so much sense what you're saying. And then it, it, it then it clicked for me. Like, Is there a difference though? Is is there some unfairness? Like some communities will have certain resources where other communities won't have those resources. And so, you know, will we, how do we, I don't wanna say means test community helping, but like, how do we make sure that that all those different communities can, can, you know, be resilient through those processes, those situations?
1: Well, if you think about it, those communities that are more affluent have more resources need to be able to handle more disasters to free up the outside resources in the federal government to go where the greatest need is. Um, so to a certain degree, this is if this is getting to what I, I continue to see as a fundamental uh, misunderstanding that disasters strike communities equally. And like, really? What part of COVID weren't you paying attention to when you look yeah. at fatality rates, you know? How many people are getting displaced after disasters that gentrification comes in, replaces the affordable housing with upscale housing that provides more tax base, but forces workers further from their their communities and their jobs. So this this nonsense that all disasters are great equalizers, we weren't equal before the disaster. Why do you think it gets better after disaster? Yeah. yeah. But the idea that I found that is underappreciated, even in lower income communities, is social connectedness. Uh because neighbor helping neighbor isn't about I got a lot of resources. It's yeah. I got a willingness to check on my neighbor. And that is not driven by uh, financial incomes. So in fact, I, I got a feeling the, the, the more affluent you are, the more alone you are in some of these events.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so I, I really focus on you know things that it's less about you got to have a lot of money to do this as much as. Government needs to get out of the way and give the public permission to organize and respond and do things that they can. They are not do it anyway. Uh, and try to help guide that and provide useful information without trying to talk to people like a parent talking to a child and say, you need to do this or do that, and give them information that's useful. But the more that I can get those communities that can take care of themselves, the neighborhoods that do have the resources, the more I free up for the people that just don't have anything or were heavily impacted and uh because that's that's the reality and the bigger the disasters uh the less resources there are to go around to everybody
0: yeah you're you're so right you're so right and then again to kind of building on this topic you make me think of the the term i heard you say i believe you talked about community community resilience i believe it's for community resilience and and you're talking about how you know we 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 are doing so much to create these infrastructures around water and this and that, but there's also an impact to the community and tr- trauma. And I- I'd love to hear you talk about that for a little bit, if you want
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we always create new buzzwords in in my profession and the latest buzzword had been, you know, building <laughs> resilient infrastructure and right? everybody's yeah. focused on the infrastructure. So instead of the uh, tornado, uh, you know, wiping out the school or, the flood taking out a bridge, things like that. We'll build it back stronger, uh, engineer it better, maybe move it. But it was always about stuff. And I said, you know what? I think we should be focused on is people. And are we building resilient communities? Because just because the road survived doesn't necessarily mean the community survived. What if the jobs didn't come back? What if the yeah? And yeah. The, and the big issue is rental properties. What if the lower-income rental properties don't come back or get replaced and gentrified? Uh, are we focused on people, not stuff, as our measure of successfully dealing with uh, building resources, especially in the face of, of climate change, which I try to tell people climate change is like saying you're sick. doesn't tell you what's wrong with you. you just says you're sick. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really focusing on, on the climate has changed. We haven't. We're seeing increasing heat waves, uh, which, again, lower-income homeless communities are most vulnerable to. We're seeing the wildfires out west. We see extreme rainfall events. Uh, as we saw in New York City in the aftermath, of the remnants of, of you know the, the storm that hit there, uh, a lot of people that drowned were in basements. And, and, and the first thing you hear is, well, those are illegal. I'm like, really? How much is code enforcement really enforcing what is, yeah. for many folks, the only affordable housing they can get? Yeah yet they knew it was a risk, there was a reason why they didn't permit people to live in basements. Uh, but the reality was, that's affordable housing in New York City.
2: Thank you for tuning in to the Alex Tremble Show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors.
0: Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year round. WEPA has been ensuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. Waipa can be used as a supplement or a replacement for Fegley, and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WAPA Group Term Life Insurance and see how much you could save by visiting WAEPA.org today.
2: The results are in! Research has found that networking is one of the four skills absolutely required to successfully advance in your career. However, when asked, most government employees state that they don't network because they believe that networking is for extroverts and for people who care more about their own careers than the organization's mission. But what if there was a way to ethically network without looking self-absorbed and being a super extrovert? Well, there is. Alex Tremble has created a seven-week online networking course specifically designed to give ambitious leaders like yourself the skills needed to become a strategic networker. This course uses time-tested and research-backed strategies to help you identify, build, and maintain critical relationships with influential leaders. Visit alextremble.com slash courses slash networking to learn more about his networking model today. Use the discount code Family on the checkout screen to receive a 20% discount. Don't delay. Enroll today at alextremble.com slash courses slash networking. And now back to the Alex Tremble show with your host, Alex Tremble.
0: Yeah, oh man. It, 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 so it, it make me think about, so there's another topic I've been thinking about recently and I'm gonna use this word because I can I can say it because my show. Um, I've been pissed off a little bit <laughs> recently um, with nonprofit organizations. Being in a nonprofit should not mean that you, live in poverty like everyone says oh you're a nonprofit oh it's okay you get paid less and like that, that's if you're, you're doing good work that, that that shouldn't be the case you you should be paid for what you do um, but it's not just me that you have to change an entire movement and system and when you were talking about you know focusing on the people aspect of it I feel like you are then trying to change an entire system that is focused generally on those hard resources that we were talking about before bridges and yep. whatnot how do you make that change? How do you, I mean, you're one voice. I mean, you're a big voice, but you're one voice.
1: Uh, incremental. Um, you know, I found that sometimes just getting people to talk about something and, and, and again, just making people uncomfortable enough not to accept, you know, stay with the status quo um, is maybe all I get to do. Um, so, you know, when people say that disasters are equal, I'm like, no, they're not. That's a lie. Uh, disasters hit people based upon their pre-existing conditions and people with disabilities we know die at a higher rate disastrous than people that are not don't have disabilities. We know income levels have a long way to go to whether people have financial resilience, have insurance, have the ability to rebuild their homes or lose everything. Uh, so you can't tell me that, you know, disasters are equal if the communities weren't equal before the disaster hit. And I think sometimes it's just calling it out and saying it that, That's that's a lie. It's not true.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, And that, you know, there there are so many things that, you know, people just gloss over. Uh, And I'm like, you know, well, it's like the whole term natural disaster. I kind of got schooled on this by a lot of people in in this space. And they said, you know, quit calling them natural disasters. There's nothing natural about that disaster because natural phenomena don't always lead to disaster. Where and how we build do. Mm-hmm. And we tend to take away the responsibility for local governments and states on where and how they build, develop, building codes, a whole lot of decisions that are made by the public officials that we seem to hold harmless when that natural hazard occurs, which sometimes they say, well, we, 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 it never was that bad. We didn't know it could be that bad. And I'm like, you know, I'm sitting on so much data when I was at FEMA that I'm like, what part of this didn't you understand? Yeah. Or yeah. was it your decision that development and growth outweighed the risk, and you figure somebody else will just come in and bail you out when it happens?
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for this. You you I, I'm I'm learning so much and I'm gonna question a lot of things moving forward. And as as you talked about um, natural disasters, it, kinda, it made me think about a, a challenge that I had. And again, I've told, said this many times. I use these these conversations as, as therapy for myself. Um, you know, I have a guilt about me. Um, I, I've served in a number of leadership roles over the years, and those leadership roles required me to to act when things happen, to find solutions, and, and so on and so forth. And I've come to feel cold sometimes. Like, oh, everyone else is freaking out. Everyone else is crying. Everyone else. But I'm not. I'm just like, hey, let's, let's get to this. Let's, let's figure this out. You know, Let's keep going forward. And sometimes I feel so cold hearted as a leader in making those decisions. And, and I'll say really quickly, I went to this, this crisis leadership training that OPM was hosting. Right? I got to meet crisis managers from all kinds of different sectors, and they all felt Not the same guilt, they all felt the same way. Like when they're going into situations, everyone else is freaking out and crying and things like that. But they're just like, nope, let's focus. Let's get this done. Have you ever ever felt anything like that? Like notice that in those situations that you are not maybe freaking out. And how how do you kind of know? I can't be the only one who who feels a little guilty about this.
1: That's a skill set. That's a valuable tool. Um, It doesn't mean you're not uh, compassionate but it also means you understand what I've had to teach a lot of people when, when bad stuff is happening and people are running around, uh, I'm like, take your pulse. And they go, what do you mean? I said, take your pulse. And, and they go, okay, do you have one? Yeah. You're not the emergency. Mm-hmm. Settle down and focus on the people you're serving. If you become, uh, and again, it's not that you don't feel bad or you see this stuff and it doesn't, you know, you know, walking out, you know, the, the day after Joplin tornado and seeing the devastation there flying over to Jersey shore, you, you know, what people are going through. Yeah. But that's not your job. Your job is to focus on changing the outcomes for the better. And if you lose your head or you, you know, fall prey to now it's personal, it's no longer you're doing what's best for the public. You're now starting to do what you feel is best for you. You lose objectivity. Mm. Uh, And people say, well, that's being cold hearted. That's a lot of things. I'm like, in my line of work, if you're the emergency, you ain't helping anybody. If you're doing this to make yourself feel better, you're probably in it for the wrong reason. And being able to stand back emotionally is not showing that you're not compassionate, but it does mean that you have to focus on what you're doing. And again, I was a paramedic, uh, I can remember a lot of people saying the hardest thing about being a paramedic was dealing with kids. And I'm like, somebody's <laughs> got to deal with the kids. You just can't like opt out and says, I can't handle kids. I'm like, well, if the kids got the need, you better become a paramedic right quick because there's nobody else there. So that was the thing. I think if you are focused on what you're doing, people say, well, it's tunnel vision and everything else. I'm like, Uh, Not really. I, I, I maintain good peripheral uh, vision, but the the times that I really felt the most angst is when I didn't know what to do. And that was generally a sign that if I am feeling the angst and I'm not sure what to do, uh, coach bench me and put somebody else in.
0: You, you would call yourself out.
1: Yeah. Because once you lose objectivity, you can do a lot more harm than you can. Good. Um, and, and, and again, it isn't so much you get benched as you go, all right, guys, I'm clueless. Anybody got an idea? Yeah. And sometimes yeah. somebody will just say something out of the blue and you go, that's it. That's what I've been missing. Yeah. Because I think this other thing is you're expected to know everything and have every answer and solve every problem. Uh, good leadership knows when, uh, okay, I'm blank. Who else has got a good idea? And I think part of this is, is to recognize a good idea. And because it didn't originate with you, sometimes it's difficult for people. But sometimes the good ideas uh, will come from the most junior member of a team. It's being able to recognize it's a good idea and, and run with it. That's the key.
0: You, you know, um, I, I, I'm i 100% with you on that. And I, and I, and I do that now better. Um, at the beginning of my career, I think I, not I think, I must have stubbed my toe because I was so focused on getting feedback from my team that on the, at the end of the the year, I did this performance evaluation and all of them felt in, in the writing that I couldn't make a decision. And I was like, no, I can make a decision. I was just asking you for your input. So is there, is there a, a line or is there a balance on providing those opportunities for people to weigh in and then not having them have that perception of you not being able to make a decision?
1: Well, it depends on how much time you have. I mean, when you're responding to disaster, time's your most precious commodity. So having more meetings isn't going to improve things. (laughs) Uh, And it's to be able to quickly get to the tipping point of making decisions. And I think what people look for is you know this idea that in a crisis, leadership can make a decision. It may not be the best decision. It may not be uh, the right decision down the road. But given the information and the time you've got you're willing to make a decision. And I think where employees or their team members and crisis get kind of antsy is when leadership keeps wanting more information because they're, they're afraid to commit to a decision and they always want more information. So yeah. they don't make a mistake. Like time is your most precious commodity. If you're waiting for the perfect, if you're waiting for all the information to make the perfect decision, you're too late. So I think what they look for is uh, not people that just shoot from the hip or just, you know, the proverbial bull in China shop, but also recognize they need to get to a decision in, in, in disasters is a good example. When the clarity of the situation, the information is still evolving, uh, you're going in with in, imperfect uh, uh, variables making your decision and then being willing to adjust that as better information comes in without treating it like, well, I was wrong or, you know, now it's like, Trust me, I've been through this. Where what I thought I was going to be doing in the morning by mid afternoon, I was I found ourselves doing something entirely different. But <laughs> uh, if we had waited till the afternoon to make a decision, we'd have lost all the work we had started that morning.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you, I'd love to take another quick divergent, uh, another another question, different direction. Um, I think you and I both agree that. We can respond to events, we can respond to challenging times, um, but once we've responded and we've spent the resources responding, we don't always then dedicate the resources necessary to prepare for the next time. Um, we, you know, sometimes, you know, many times pro- programs could be unfunded as we're preparing for the next event um, Another event doesn't come, so we you unfund it and put the money somewhere else and then the event comes and now we're you're scrambling again. Um, that can be very tempting, to, to allocate resources and allocate time away from those things that you, those things you're preparing for to the new shiny objects And I guess I'd like to ask you how is there a way that managers and leaders should, should check themselves to make sure they're not following falling into that 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 really bad cycle of fixing a bad issue and then just waiting for the next issue to pop up like how do you maintain that focus on the thing that may or may not happen
1: what's the essential function why are you in existence and in my case at fema uh, as much as everybody's off chasing shiny bright objects it was responding to the next disaster that may or may not come with warning and that was when i got to fema because of katrina and the aftermath of that everybody's focused on hurricanes and so I did my 1st no non-notice exercise within about a uh, month and a half of being there. And I had, uh, one of our FEMA regions who just completed a big exercise with the state of California region nine, basically phone in a unannounced unscheduled unplanned major earthquake just happened in California exercise. And I got all kinds of grief from the team because <laughs> nobody knew it was coming. It wasn't <laughs> on their schedules. Uh, who authorized this, uh, you know, I got other things I'm supposed to be doing today. And um, I was, you know, rather blunt. And and this is where I go. I don't necessarily have good, great people skills or leadership skills. And I'm like, well, you know, quite quite honestly, you're whining and I don't really care. But what I want you to understand (laughs) is earthquakes don't come with a forecast. And we are not a one-dimensional agency. And so I introduced them to the concept of no-notice exercises and drills that I did periodically on folks. Uh, because I wanted them to understand that uh, we have a core mission and we have a function that we're supposed to execute 24 hours a day, seven days a week, good weather, bad people out of pocket, people on vacation, doesn't matter. Nobody wants to hear the excuse of why female wasn't ready. So that was the approach I took was we have a lot of things in our, in our, our to-do list, but there are things that I consider the essential functions that we have to execute all the time, not just seasonally, not just when we see a storm coming and not just when it's convenient for senior leadership because it disrupts their other activities.
0: I'm gonna ask you two quick questions. I know we're we're starting to run up against our time a little bit. Um, The first, FEMA, you just talked about the hurricanes. Um, We know that. Tornadoes, we know that. Um, Earthquakes, we know that, I'm pretty sure. what else did FEMA do or does FEMA worry about that? Maybe most people don't even think that they worry about.
1: Well, they weren't worried about when I got there, uh, <laughs> but I, I quickly got them to worry about, which was geomagnetic storms, uh, space weather, uh, you know, the movies Armageddon and, 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 and Deep Impact, all that stuff was like there's actually an office established at. NASA that FEMA has staff detail to for near-Earth orbiting objects. In fact, they're launching a satellite mission to go see if they can uh, change the uh, course of an asteroid. Uh, So we are are well into that. Uh, We were dealing with H1N1 when I came into FEMA, so working on pandemic planning, uh, cyber attacks, uh, looking at... uh, uh, FEMA also sits as the ambassador to NATO's representative for what they call the Civil Emergency Protection Committee. So they actually have staff in Brussels, and I would attend those meetings as the principal uh, talking about NATO and uh, defense and and disasters and crisis there. Uh, You know, I I was talking with my, my counterparts at USDA. I don't think FEMA really got a good idea what we'd be doing with a foreign animal disease outbreak, something like foot and mouth uh <laughs> the nuclear power plants and and the thing is people thought well all these disasters you know what do you do and i'm like look the mayor is the mayor no matter which one of these disasters you pick so the idea is uh we use this term all hazard it doesn't mean that all hazards are the same but if you think about government structures you think about the authorities and stuff that's not going to change that dramatically and while different agencies may have lead roles or less roles depending upon the event, the, the basic team concept and the functional approach you build allows you to adapt to a lot of different crises without having to sit there and write a plan for everything and then have different players for all of that. You just don't have the luxury. And again, it was it's looking at from FEMA's standpoint, the The consequences of events, not so much on what the event was, but or the consequences. You think about it. uh, FEMA deals with a lot of power outages, uh, generally due to windstorms and hurricanes. Uh, But many of the same things that would occur could occur in a cyber attack on the electrical grid, Mm. uh, could occur with disruptions uh, to supplies, fuel supplies, things like that. Geomagnetic storms, which could result in widespread power outages, communication. failure. I mean, and I was old school at FEMA. I'd give them exercises like uh, you need to talk to all 50 states and the uh, uh, the Internet's down. And everything that connects to the Internet's down, which means all of your phone system, which backhauls using Internet protocols down. <laughs> uh, so I want to talk to all 50 states without touching the public switch network.
0: So you, you're using call pigeons?
1: Well, what happened was uh, you got to use radios and most of the, and and the federal government has a lot of HF radios, but they're not on the right frequencies for the States. A lot of States don't have the radios, but it was, it was a problem statement going, we need to be able to communicate with the governors in this type of event. I don't know what knocked it out, but if it goes out, what are you going to do? And they're like, well, it's not realistic. You know, you've got all these things. We've got all these backups. I'm like, I live in the world where all that stuff breaks. I, mean, <laughs> I, have, I have to plan for the high consequence, low probability events. I mean, people forget we were still planning for nuclear attack. You know, we had to plan for terrorist incidents. We have to plan for improvised nuclear devices, bioterrorism, uh, You know, things like COVID. People think came out of the blue. I'm like, no, we were doing exercises. And I remember being in the sit room at the White House doing exercises in 2016. And then in the Eisenhower building, briefing the incoming administration.
0: So I, I know we're about to, we're about to wrap up. And I, I, I had one other question for you, but I just have to ask you, how cool is it to, to brief at the white house? Like how cool is it to be in the white house doing that work? Or is it not, it's not that big. It's like in the, in the movies.
1: Um, you know, I, I thought it was going to be a bigger deal than it, but president Obama is pretty much a uh, regular, you know, he's the president, but, um, He's pretty straightforward, and once you understand him, it's not that difficult. Um, He's got a dry sense of humor. Uh, (laughs) It it was usually after the fact, and people would comment on stuff. I'll give you an example during uh, the uh, hurricane or Superstorm Sandy that hit the uh, the the New Jersey New York coastline. um, uh, I was supposed to meet the president out at Andrews and join him on Air Force One fly up there. Uh, They decided. He decided he wanted me to go to the White House with him and, and then go back, which meant that we were going to walk out and get on there on Marine One and fly back to Andrews. Um, and OK, and, and so, you know, they get ready and president, hey, correct, come up and, and walk out. with me. And so I'm walking next to the president out there for to, to Marine One. And uh, I go you know, with him. I get in on that 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 door. I go in uh, uh, and we get on there. Tired out of the military later comments is correct. That was a huge deal. What are you talking about? You walked out with the president to get on Marine one? I'm like, Yeah, well, <laughs> you get a ride back over to Andrews. And um, he said, No, you don't understand. When have you ever seen anybody except for the first lady or a head of state walk out with the president? Even the chief of staff secretaries go in and get on the back door of Marine one, they don't get on with the president. And they're like, I'm like going, oh, well, I guess it is a big deal. Uh, so I think sometimes I was just so naive, the protocol and stuff, just went <laughs> right in my head. But they're like, you don't understand. Nobody. And I, and I thought about it, I'm like, you know, you're right, because I've never seen the president walk out with anybody except for the first lady or a head of state getting on Marine One. And here I was, the FEMA administrator, you know wearing a wearing a, a FEMA a windbreaker and, and logo wear shirt and khaki's walking out to marine one with potus
0: that's so it's so cool and i I, I need I need you're gonna to, to mentor me and how I can get to that level because that one day that's what I want to be able to do um I do want to serve the administration at that level so look we're running up against our time i I, I want to open the i want to open the the floor back up to you to anything you'd like to share, share with our audience. And then I'm going to ask you that, that last question once you, you share your thoughts.
1: Yeah. Um, this was originally about leadership. We've talked about a lot of things that weren't leadership. Um, I don't consider myself a good leader. I have a lot of flaws. Uh, I can be arrogant. I can be a jerk. I can be a horrible boss. And, I, and people said, well, you know, when you talk about leadership, and I said a good leader knows what they're good at and knows what they're not good at. And they surround themselves with people to complement their weaknesses. If they're all agreeing with you or they're all like you, you probably got bigger problems. Uh, but the first thing is I tell people, you're not going to read it in the book. You're not going to, it's not a slogan. You got to know who you are and accept that. And people say, we're going to change. I'm like, really, I, you're going to waste a lot of time. Know your strengths, know your weaknesses, build your team around your weaknesses, not your strengths
0: thank you so much for that Craig I I, I I I personally needed to hear that there's some stuff I'm working through leadership wise as well So I, I needed to hear that thank you and that last question I wanted to throw by you is before you became the the, the FEMA administrator um, what do what was that one thing is there one thing that from a leadership perspective, you wish you would have known before taking on that leadership role. Uh, I spoke to the um, acting director of the CFPB, and even though he served as the the deputy um, for a number of years before moving into that role, he still said when he moved in that role, it was a huge change, right? Just moving into that senior level role. From a leadership perspective, there anything that you wish you would have known or done differently to prepare yourself for that role?
1: This may sound arrogant, but after I left the state of Florida and I got up there, people back home were asking me, what's it like? What's it like? You know, how different is it? I'm like, really not different. There's just more of them.
0: (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, it sounds like it speaks to that point that you made at the beginning of our conversation about you're always you weren't looking for your next opportunity, but you were always preparing yourself for that next opportunity, learning, growing. So when those things did come, you're ready for it.
1: Yeah, I think the folks at FEMA, and they knew me and they knew I was a problem because I was uh, not always very agreeable with them as a state director. Um, but <laughs> I didn't look at myself as a political pointy first. I saw myself as an emergency manager first and that the pinnacle of that is the FEMA administrator. Uh, so that was my approach, and again, I I have a lot of flaws. Anybody knows me well; those that have worked under me or with me will tell you I'm a I got a lot of flaws. Um, but the one thing that I, I I think that I try to really focus on is do I understand my craft of my chosen profession, and. People wouldn't agree with me. People that like what I did they didn't like the way I went about doing it. But I, I did run into the situation very often where it was my lack of understanding. Uh, in some cases, it gave me an edge because they would tell me it was too hard to do, and I'm like, "No, it isn't." <laughs> and, and, uh, and I found sometimes pushing people well past what they were prepared to do got a lot of things accomplished. And it's a, you know, it's, it's kind of bad. I got more confidence that you can do this than you you do yourself. So uh, let's go.
0: Hey, Craig, thank you again so much for being here with us today. You you have been absolutely magnificent, wonderful, and you share so much great content. Um, Look, I'm going to sound like a broken record, as I do every single time. If you listen to this, you know what I'm about to say. Don't just look back reach back. If you found anything of value throughout this conversation, don't keep it to yourself. Don't let all these these gems and, and nuggets and gold diamond pieces of knowledge and advice that Craig shared today, don't let it just sit on your ears, your heart, and your mind. Share it with someone else. Bring someone else to the table. Don't just look back, reach back. Now, as always, to say, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moved. See you, Craig.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com. And be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.